as we continue to walk through the forest and see all the beauty, all the wonderful details of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, this letter that's uh, kind of a theological treatise on the doctrine of salvation. We are thankful for all that we are seeing. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray before we begin to look at it more deeply. Lord, we are thankful for this gift that you've given us. What a precious gift it is. I mean, the, the gift of salvation in your son, so fantastic. But we wouldn't even know about that if it wasn't for your word. So thank you that you've given us this book. It's all God-breathed and profitable for us. It is life-changing. It helps us to see life from your point of view. It helps us to see that we have all that we need for life and godliness. It helps us to know that the Holy Spirit dwells in those who have placed our faith in Christ. It's so full of wonderful promises, um, important warnings and exhortations. Such a blessing. Pray that we'll do it honor this morning as we give our attention to it. May the Spirit of God open each of our hearts and minds to receive what we may need individually and what we need as a church body to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Rags to riches. Rags to riches. Now, we've all read stories which have that kind of a heading. We've all heard or read stories of individuals who have gone from absolute poverty, being destitute, to tremendous wealth and, and uh, influence. And a little, you know, is expected of those who are destitute, to those who are poor. And so when someone makes it, you know, big, it, it catches our attention, doesn't it? Kind of in a special way. It somehow confirms to us living in the United States that the land of opportunity still has something that we can acquire. However, many times you don't read a story. Many times you wouldn't read this story. In fact, you would hardly ever read it. Riches to rags, or I should say, actually first, riches to more riches. You don't usually read about those stories. And the reason is probably because our thoughts are that those who grow up with riches and privileges uh, of being rich should be successful, and they should get more riches. So you might think of people like Bill Gates or uh, 
Elon Musk or, you know, other people that have made it big in business. And you kind of aren't surprised when they just get richer and richer and have more and more influence. But it does strike us when we hear of a riches to rag story. A riches to rag story. There are countless stories of those who had it all, (laughs) it seems, only to lose it all. Sometimes it's due to a crash in the stock, stock market or it's it's due to poor business decisions. You know, it's the common story, isn't it, of those who win the lottery, that unearned money. They win the lottery, and within a matter of a few years, they've lost all that unearned wealth. They're, They're back to having nothing, maybe worse off than before they won the lottery. Sometimes that's due to a person squandering or misusing the privileges that they have in life. Well, it doesn't strike us. When the rich get richer, or the poor get poorer, I think, but when the rich lose it all, does it it catch your attention? It does me. It does me. Not because I have a desire to be rich, but it's, it's, it's like, what a waste. What a waste. We have the same type of feelings, I think, when we see a person overcome formidable obstacles and, and make it big in their particular field of athletics. I think uh, particularly of when I was much younger, the story of Scott Hamilton stood out to me. He, as a young boy, he had polio, could hardly walk. He grew up and became the gold medal winner in figure skating in the Olympics and was like the number one a figure skater at the time for quite a, a while. You know, those kinds of stories, they're, they're inspiring. They're, they, they're feel-good stories uh, that we like to read or hear about. On the other hand, it's particularly annoying to sports fans in particular when an athlete who is expected to be the next best thing in their sport only end, end up failing to meet the expectations that were had of them. Now, they had every natural advantage. You know, they they had all the right genes to make it big, to jump higher, run faster. They're bigger. They're just amazing athletes. And sometimes they don't put the work in. Or sometimes they get caught up in the hype, what everyone is saying about them. and, And they don't come close to reaching their potential. And people think, what a waste. What a waste. Well, in Romans 3, 1 to 8, Paul lays out what you could say is his own version of a riches-to-rags story, or a story of those who had great privileges, great advantages, but never attained to what they should have. In this text, he is still using the literary device that we've talked about uh, multiple times, diatribe, where he is establishing two people talking. He's one, and then he... He creates an imaginary straw man, and he represents the arguments that a straw man would make against what he's saying. So you have the straw man speaking, and then Paul is responding to it, and it's been that way since chapter 2, verse 1. He's been using that literary device. And Paul concluded chapter 2 by showing how the self-righteous Jew in particular, but we could say self-righteous people in general, in general, 
They stand upon their religious rituals, but they do not possess a right relationship with God, which is the big need of mankind. Why? Because we're all condemned. We're under the wrath of God because of uh, our sin, because we're sinners. We violated God's character and all that he says that we should do. And so we deserve his wrath, his condemnation. And he has showed them that, you know, they deserve it too, the self-righteous. Not just the pagan immoral idolaters of chapter 1, the self-righteous religious people in chapter 2 as well. And he's already knocked down the pillars uh, uh, that the Jews believe would earn them a right relationship with God. Well, what was that? Well, being a physical descendant of Abraham was top of the list. Secondly, being physical, physically circumcised. And number three, being a recipient of the law. They basically conclude because those things were true of them, they were right with God. Next, he's, he's going to demonstrate that while the Jews had great advantage over other nations because of God's special dealings with them, their failure to live up to their potential, their failure to live up to their potential, did not nullify God's faithfulness or his divine justice toward them. What a waste to have such great privilege but not take advantage of the privilege that they had. Paul uses the straw man to make his argument. And in these verses, it's, it's real clear, maybe it's not clear to you, but it's real clear to me as I study it, um, that what he does is he takes the Jewish straw man and represents him speaking four times, four questions that the straw man states, verses 1, 3, five, and seven. That's the straw man speaking. Verses two, four, six, and eight are Paul's responses to the straw man. And the apostle will make, through this dialogue that he's representing would take place, uh, he makes three main points. And the, the first of those points is that divine revelation provides a great advantage. So if you're filling in your insert, that's your first one. Divine revelation provides a great advantage. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to see that divine faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. That's number 2. That's verses 3 and 4. And then in 5 through 8, we'll see that divine justice is not negated even though our sin reveals God's righteousness. Those are the points that he's making. So we're just going to work our way through those main points. Divine revelation provides a great advantage. So again, in chapter 2, Paul had listed some of the things which the Jews prided themselves on and showed that such things are of no benefit unless there's the reality that is behind those rituals. In arguing with the straw man that the Jew is equally sinful and deserving of God's wrath, well, he raised the question in the Jew's mind. I mean, he's a descendant of David, of Abraham, a member of God's chosen people, one who has received the law and has been circumcised. How can he still be judged by God? That just doesn't seem right. If he can be judged like the pagan Gentiles, well, it raises even more questions. And that's where he begins with the... The first straw man's questions. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
we might put it in the, in the terms of uh, what advantage has a religious person? Or what is the value of circumcision? We might say, or what is the value of baptism? Or what is the value of partaking in the, you know, the Lord's Supper? Or being a church member? Or giving money to God's work? What is the value? You know, if we're going to be judged in the same way as those who don't do any of those things. Well, those two opening questions by the straw man represent just how absolutely devastated the, the Jews would feel by what Paul has said. I mean, think what he has said to them. Doesn't mean, really doesn't mean anything that you're a descendant of Abraham, that you've been circumcised, that you have the, the law, that you're a member of the chosen nation, unless you have the reality of a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's been saying. What he's already stated seems to imply that there was no advantage, right? No advantage to being or uh, a Jew or having any of the privileges belonging to the chosen people. So logically, the answer to the objector, objector's questions was, what is the advantage of being a Jew? And, you know, what is the value of circumcision? It would seem like it would be, well, there's no advantage at all. There's no advantage at all. But Paul surprises him with his response. Much, he says, much in every way. Every time I say that phrase, I think of Scrooge and Marley's ghost loosening his, his bandage, and he goes, much. What do you have to say to me? Much. And Paul's like, what is the advantage of being a Jew or having a circumcision? Much, he says. Your translation might have great or it is much in every way it is great in every way he says so in spite of all that he said about the jews who are uh, a privileged people he says you're still a privileged people even though i've seem like i've cut down all the pillars of what you're trusting in if the old testament is to be believed and it should be then God chose the Jews out of all the other nations of mankind, and he, he bestowed on them unique benefits and blessings, right? If you've read your Old Testament, if you're reading your Old Testament now, because you're reading through the Bible every year like you should, you, you've already been reminded of that as you, you've gone along. All God's blessings upon them, starting with Abraham and following. Great great benefits, to reduce their importance in the eyes of God and put them on the same level as all the other pagan nations, you know, is either to say that the Old Testament can't be relied upon or that God does not keep his promises. Did you get that? I mean, that's what the, the straw man would be kind of thinking. What? It's like God's not faithful? I mean, he's not going to keep his promise. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't have all these benefits. And Paul says, no, you have all the benefit. You do. Paul's made it clear, though, that God's judgments are impartial. He said that in chapter 2, several verses, the whole point. He, he doesn't look at people and say, oh, you're a Jew and you're gentle. I'm going to bless you and, you know, pour my wrath out on you. He didn't look at rich people and poor people and do the same thing, or men or women or any distinctions between people. There is no distinction in God's eyes as far as people standing before him. They are all sinners who deserve his wrath. So he said that. Jews can't expect a favorable judgment just because they're of Abraham's race and have been circumcised and have received the law. 
But Paul does not go to the point of saying that being a Jew doesn't matter at all. In fact, he says it's quite the contrary. It's much in every way. In fact, their, their special status as God's chosen nation, along with its many benefits, was, he says, advantageous in every way. Now, after affirming the Jewish advantage was much in every way, one would expect that he would list several of those advantages, right? He says, much in every way? Well, tell me the ways. Now, he doesn't do that in this text. He only focuses it on one. But I want you to see some of the other advantages that he does mention later in the book of Romans. Go over to Romans chapter 9. Sorry, in verse 1, just the first few verses, he lays out some of these first five verses, the many benefits that they did have. He, he's, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, the children of Abraham, right? The Jews. And then he says, they are Israelites, which means they're descendants of Jacob, Abraham, Jacob, right? Isaac, Jacob. They're descendants of Jacob. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's quite a list of advantages over the other nations. Well, let's go back to our text in Romans 3. And again, Paul just focuses then on one, doesn't he? So here's his response. To begin with, so he's always said it's much in every way. To begin with, or first or foremost of all, you can translate that idea that way. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, you hear the word oracles, you, you might not know what that means. You might be thinking Greek mythology and, you know, the oracles who gave prophecies to people. And they, the oracles of God are the Old Testament scriptures. Okay. So to be entrusted with the oracles of God means more than simply being recipients. Make sure you get that. It's more than being mere recipients of God's revelation in the scripture. It implies that they were given the responsibility of being the custodians and, and the transmitters of God's word. They were entrusted with it. The children of God, right? That's what that word entrust means, right? It's, I'm putting this in your trust to do what is right with it. So the children of Israel were given God's authentic self-revelation in trust to treasure it for them, themselves, their own benefit, and to declare it to other, to other nations. And you read the Old Testament, that becomes clear. God wanted the children of Israel to be his servant who made his glory known to all the nations. Well, the oracles of God are God's self-revelation to people. And in it, you know, they had the benefit of promises and commandments and covenants and messianic promises and, uh, you know, a representation of what the kingdom of God was supposed to be like. So this is a great advantage because in the oracles of God was revealed a declaration of his person, his characteristics, his standards, his, his, his Messiah, 
you know, his sacrifice for sinners, his plans for his kingdom. What an advantage. So there's a sense in which having the oracles of God provided the Jews something that no other kingdom had, no other nation had, because it gave them a nearness to God and the kingdom of God. Get that? The oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures, brought them near. Even as Paul will say in Romans 10, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's people who are putting themselves away from God. God is near. If you'll just open your ears and listen to what God has to say. It should have prepared the Jewish people for receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus was their Messiah. And the Old Testament scriptures pointed to that. It is as Paul wrote to Timothy uh, concerning his upbringing. This is in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation in, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. So much in that, right? Timothy, you were raised. Well, earlier on in the letter, it becomes clear. It was his grandmother and his mother who had raised him in the scriptures. Continue to learn it. Continue to study it. Know it. Why? Because it's able to make you wise. For salvation, right? For salvation through faith in Christ. Did you get that? The Old Testament scriptures would make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wait, Jesus wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, he was in the Messianic promises. He was in the scriptures from Genesis 3 when God says, you shall bruise his heal, but he'll bruise your head. The first gospel given in the scriptures. He was all through the Old Testament, all pointed to God's Messiah being the Savior. This was true of Paul himself. Think of Paul. If you know anything about him, if you've read Acts, you, you know his beginnings. I mean, he was the great persecutor of the church. He was seeking out Christians to bring them into places where they could be tortured and jailed and even put to death. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You read about it in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, all relate the story of his conversion when he was confronted by Jesus on the, on the Damascus road. But he had the advantage in his childhood as well. He had been trained in the scriptures under the tutelage of the well-respected Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, you can read about Gamaliel a couple of times in Acts. Acts 5.34 doesn't mention Paul, but it, it does mention how high a view the people had of this rabbi. And then in, in Acts 22.3, Paul mentions that he was trained under this rabbi. So he had the advantage of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that could point him to salvation. So when he met Christ, there was not a lot of resistance. He turned to Christ in faith. Think of the scribe who came to Jesus 
asking him about the commandment, which is the greatest commandment. And Jesus talks to him and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and Jesus says of this man who also had been raised in the scriptures, knew it well. He was a scribe, a teacher of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus says he was not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Because he had this advantage, which all the Jews had. They had the oracles of God. He was in a position where he should be led to faith in God's Messiah, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. So by very possession of the scriptures, the Jews had an advantage, an advantage over the heathen because, because of this, the guilt of the Jews was greater than that of other nations. That will explain to you why the sermon title on your sheet is Greater Privilege Brings Greater Guilt. The greater the privilege, the greater the guilt. And we should give consideration ourselves to how the church, and particularly I'm thinking of the church here in the United States, we have so many, so many privileges compared with those who don't know God. So many, right? There are so many people groups that have never heard the scriptures read. They've never heard about the Savior. What is the number of people groups now, Kia, roundabout? Several thousand people groups, not persons, people groups who have never heard, never read the scriptures, never heard about Christ. Uh, what an advantage to be in a place where we can read the scriptures and learn knowledge that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wow. In our nation, we have absolute access to the scriptures, don't we? We, we can all own our own Bible. And by the way, if you don't own one, we'll give you one. We want you to own one. That's what those hardback Bibles are underneath that table. So if you don't own one, grab one on your way out. But uh, we, we have the freedom to hear the Word of God preached every Lord's Day and oftentimes many more days than the Lord's Day. You know, we can, we can go to church. We can hear God's Word preached. We have that freedom we can download the scriptures and sermons and podcasts with ease onto our digital devices and listen to the scripture anytime that we want to. Those who hear the word of God, those who hear it and read it, those who hear it preach, are as a general rule more likely to come to faith in Christ than those who don't have that privilege. Yes. But like the Jews, if we who have the scriptures, but we don't read it, or we don't obey what it commands, or we reject its exhortations, and we don't heed its warnings, uh, our guilt will be all the greater. Our guilt is greater because we have such a great privilege. And, and, and Jesus himself said in Luke twelve forty eight, to everyone to whom much was given... Of him much will be required, and from him whom they, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So we are God's people, the church, and we have absolute access to the scriptures. How many times have we encouraged you as the church family, read the Bible? And I got tired of asking for a raise of hands of 
the number of people who have actually read through the entire Bible because the percentage is not real high. It's so sad. So sad. What a great advantage we have. Use it. Use it. It's for your good and God's glory. And guilt. Yeah, we can still have guilt as Christians. Our guilt is all the greater if we don't take advantage of the privilege that God has given us. The second point Paul makes, divine faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. Let me read those verses again. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the objector. That's the straw man. Paul responds, by no means. Let God be true that everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul's objecting straw man would respond to what Paul has said about the advantage of the Jews being much in every way by saying that he would agree with that, that, yeah, there were, were these events. That's what he's been saying. That's what he's been, he's in agreement with that. We're chosen people, Abraham's descendants, been circumcised, receivers of the law. But what Paul has just said raises another question in his mind. And what is that question? Well, if some were unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? That's basically what you know, he's saying. The objector is saying that just because some Jews were unfaithful, he would acknowledge that some were, and they were unbelieving, but that doesn't mean those who were faithful and believing, like there would be a lot of those, right, would lose the promises of God. Wouldn't God be unfaithful in such a scenario if he judges all Jews the same, even though there are distinctions between them? Well, the very suggestion that God could ever be unfaithful causes Paul to almost shudder. And that's what you can read when you read these three words. By no means. Some translations have God forbid. Some translations have may it uh, it never be. Meganoito is the Greek. This phrase is used by Paul actually ten times in the book of Romans and twice in these verses, verse 4 and then again in verse 6. And it is one of a very, very strong denial. May unfaithfulness never, ever be attributed to God. He is always faithful, always keeps his covenant promises. Now listen, listen to a few verses. And this, believe me, it is a few verses that we're going to look at out of both the Old and New Testament that that demonstrate this. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 says, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God is faithful. Numbers 23:19, one that I'm sure several of you have memorized. God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Men are unfaithful. God is always faithful to do what he says. He doesn't lie. First Samuel 15:29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. 
for he has done a man that he should have regret. How many of you have ever regretted something that you've said or done? And the rest of you who didn't raise your hand are liars. <laughs> no, you just didn't raise your hand. I, mean, I know, every one of you would raise your hand to that. You, you've all done things, said things that you regret. Maybe you did it already this morning. Well, God's not that way. He's not like men. He doesn't regret things because he doesn't lie. Titus, let's jump to the New Testament, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul's initial in verse 1, he's basically his initial greeting like it does in almost all of his letters. But in verse 2, pertinent to what we're saying, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And then one more. Listen to the powerful statement about God's faithfulness in these verses, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. (laughs) Wow, that's just full of encouragement, isn't it? God is faithful. He gives a promise. He swears an oath. It's going to happen. God is faithful. He doesn't lie. So Paul responds to the objector's questions and places the veracity of God. That means truthfulness, right? The veracity of God over against the mendacity of people, saying, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So in a sense, Paul is saying that the objector's premise is correct, that uh, every person is a liar. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that his conclusion uh, is wrong, that God is somehow unfaithful, right? That's what his objection was basically saying that God would be unfaithful if people who are unfaithful means that all people get judged. Well, in quoting Psalm 51, Paul is emphasizing that God is true while everyone is a liar. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalm 51, it is David's psalm of repentance after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah and really hiding it from the entire nation, bringing about the deaths of many. And this is his psalm of confession. That's the background to that. And David, David's aim in writing that psalm was to make his confession as frank and open and unconditional as possible. He desired, he desired so much to show the darkness of his own unfaithfulness and unrighteousness in contrast with the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Though he had sinned, he was confident that God would remain faithful in his covenant to David because God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. Rejoice in that. It is people who are unfaithful, and it is God who is always faithful. Listen to 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2.13. Actually, it will be right there for you. Thank you, Joel. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Hmm. Why? For he cannot deny himself. If God were to be 
unfaithful, he would be denying his very character. What well, we've already read and so much more. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. His faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. So Paul's point is that the promises of God will be fulfilled even though some who claim to be his followers are unfaithful. Did, did, did you know this? I think you did. You do. That some people argue against the reality of Christi, Christianity and the truth of, be, of the Bible because of what they see in the lives who claim to be Christ followers. We've already seen it in chapter 2 and verse 24 where Paul said to the self-righteous Jews, on account of you, some blaspheme the name of God because you're not living up to the privileges, the benefits, the, all that God has given you and what you claim to be before God. But such an argument, you know, by people today who, who, who say that Christianity can't be true because of the inconsistencies of those who say that they are Christ followers, well, that argument is specious. Well, it may seem to have some merit, and I get that, right? I get that. Don't you get it? It's like, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. Look at me, and you'll believe in Christ too, but my life is all messed up. It's all just garbage at times. It's like, why would someone want to believe in Christ if I'm their example? You get the point? It's like it has some merit to it, but Paul's saying that the truth is that Christianity is not based upon the faithfulness of those who claim to be Christians, but upon the life, death, resurrection, and teaching of the Lord Jesus. And the inconsistencies in the lives of Christians can never, ever negate the beauty and sinlessness of Christ's perfect example and his sacrifice. No unfaithfulness in people can ever do away with the inerrant power the power of the cross that we just sang about a little bit ago that saves sinners and changes their life through and through. Bill McCray, author and, and pastor, tells a story of another pastor who visited the home of one of the ladies in his church. And the man of the house, who didn't attend the church, told the pastor that he would never have anything to do with that church because of a specific person who attended the church. His life, he said, just didn't match what he said he believed. Now they talked for a, a while about it, but the pastor at some point noticed a piano sitting in the room and had some music on it, some beginning student lessons, and, and he noticed that there was also some music by Tchaikovsky on it. And he asked, he asked the man if he had a child that was learning to play the piano, and he said, he proudly said, yeah, yeah, I do have a daughter, and She's taking lessons. She's doing so good. And, you know, you could see his chest kind of puff up as he said it. I mean, he was, he was thrilled that, that, you know, that the dialogue had gone to that rather than what they had been talking about. Well, the pastor asked the man if he could have his child come down and play something. And, and uh, the man agreed, and, and he had his daughter come down from upstairs, and the daughter sat at the piano, and, and then the pastor went over to the piano and, and, you know, said, go ahead and play this. It was a beginning student. She played it, you know, and she did a good job. And then he took the Tchaikovsky music, put it in front of her, and says, now play this. And the little girl, understandably, said, well, I can't play that. And, uh, 
He said, well, just, just give it a try. I promise I won't, you know, judge you on how well you do. And the daughter did as she was requested. And you can imagine what happened. It didn't sound like Tchaikovsky. I mean, let's face it. She butchered the music. And, and then the pastor turned around and he said to the father, you know, that Tchaikovsky, he was a terrible composer. <laughs> the father, you know, responded by suggesting that it would be wrong to judge the music of a composer by how well a beginning student was, uh, you know, playing the composer's music. And the pastor said, well, isn't it equally wrong to judge the merit of the work of Christ based on the lifestyle of one who is a follower, claims to be a follower of Christ, and he's learning the music of living the Christian life? You know, the longer the Christian practices the music of Christ's life, if you will, the better he will learn play the music, but when he starts out, he butchers the music. The father understood before he ever got done saying what he said. Now, Paul's point is clear, should be. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. God will always fulfill his promises because, as I've already read in Deuteronomy 32.4, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Third point Paul makes. Divine justice is not negated even though our sin reveals God's righteousness. That's verses 5 through 8. So let's read those together again. But if our unrighteousness, now again this is the straw man, in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Paul says, I, I speak in human way. By no means, he says, for then how could God judge the world? Now we're back to the straw man, verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Verse 8, Paul's response. It's in a question form, but it's still Paul's response. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the objector's use of uh, Psalm 51 and verse 4 to suggest that people sinning may not be such a bad thing because it displays the righteousness of God and that God would therefore be unrighteous to judge our unrighteous behavior. That's, he's responding that. That's what the, 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 the uh, objector goes to. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Isn't it unfair for God to judge people if their unfaithfulness demonstrates his faithfulness? And the objector's argument would be something like this. I just wrote it out trying to get all the point of it. If the effect of sin in some way advances God's purposes and manifests his character, then it would seem that God is unjust when he punishes it. Sin is giving God the opportunity to demonstrate how righteous he is, how holy he is, and so he shouldn't punish the sinner. 
How can it be right for him to use sin as a means for promoting his purposes and then judge the sinner? That doesn't seem right. And at that Paul, at that point, Paul says in the ESV, it's in brackets, parenthesis. I'm not sure about all the other uh, um, versions or translations that may be out there. But he says, I speak in a human way. I speak in human terms. And what he means by that is he's saying such an argument is just foolish. It's foolish and absurd. I have no other way to put it. That's just ridiculous that you would come to that kind of conclusion. And so he says again, his response to the objector, by no means. God forbid, may it never be. Such a thought should never, ever be accepted as having any reception of being true. And then he, he adds, for then how could God judge the world? And his point is this, if God could could be unfair, he would not be qualified to judge the pagan nations if he was unfair in judging the Jews. And of course, all the scripture shows that God is the judge. (laughs) And all will give an answer to him. The Jews now, they were confident that God would judge the Gentiles. They, They would hurrah at the thought of it. Give it to him, God. They deserve it just because they are not part of Abraham's race. They don't have the law. They don't have the advantages that we did. But they somehow thought that they would escape his wrath because they were of Abraham's race, chosen people, had circumcision, had the law, all the covenant promises, etc., that we've already talked about. And Paul's point is that if God did not judge the Jews, then he couldn't judge the Gentiles either. Let's put it this way. Every person sinned in some way shows the faithfulness of God, doesn't it? Every person's sin will have that effect because it shows the unfaithfulness of people over against the faithfulness of God. Every person could plead that their sin serves the good purpose of manifesting some positive characteristic about God. Oftentimes when I'm praying, I say, thank you, God, that you're not like me. Have you ever prayed that way? Thank you, God, that you're not like me. You're not like any person. You're perfect in every way. I'm, I'm glad for that. Then how can God judge people if my, my sin would somehow demonstrate that? His, his godly attributes. But Paul would say, listen, you and I are in agreement, objector. And most people would be in agreement with this. There will be a day when God will judge the world And if that is true, then the objector's argument is absolutely nullified. But the objector's not done. In verse 7, he essentially restates his question in verse 5, but this time he puts the contrast between God uh, and sinners in the terms of truthfulness and falsity. Uh, In verse 5, it was God is faithful, people are unfaithful. Now it is truthfulness versus falsity. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Do you get the argument? It's like, if my sinfulness, if my falsity, my falsehoods will somehow bring glory to God, how could God judge me for that? That's what he's saying. If my failure, my falsehood, 
would somehow show God's grace and glory and makes it more visible, why would God then judge me for my falsity if it manifests his truthfulness? And in the end, you know, he's glorified. That, that just doesn't seem right. It's, don't you hear that from people when you're talking about the Lord and the gospel? Well, that just doesn't seem right. That seems unfair as a common expression. Well, Paul's response in verse 8 actually indicates that he not only sees the objector's argument as faulty, but it's also an attack. He recognizes for what it is. It's an attack against the gospel which he preached. And so he, he, he puts his response in a, initially in a question format. And why not do evil that good may come? Well, that's what the objector is actually accusing Paul, Paul of preaching. This is what others were saying about Paul as he preached the gospel. And, and that's what the, the, the next statement says. As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Whenever the gospel is preached with an explanation that human merit and keeping the law has no part in bringing a person into a right relationship with God because people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, there will be this argument. People will draw to the, the conclusion that it doesn't matter whether we sin or not. It really doesn't matter how we live because God will save people regardless of their sin. In fact, to take such a view to its end conclusion, according to the objector, objector would be to conclude that to live a sinful life is actually, uh, that could be a good thing because it results in God's grace and glory, which would be manifested all the more. Hmm. To such an accusation, and to any who hold to such a view, Paul has but a brief and strong response, doesn't he? Their condemnation is just. God's wrath coming upon them is right. It is fair. It is just. Fair in God's economy. This is his way of saying that those flaunting this view of the true gospel message will receive what they deserve. God's wrath will come down on them. Those who so wickedly misrepresent the transforming nature of the gospel of Christ Jesus will face the judgment of God. That's what he's saying. To suggest the gospel's saving impact has little to do with how we live our lives after we come into a right relationship with God, that's reprehensible. Do you get that? To say that it doesn't really matter how we live? Like, all that matters is that I believed? And then in the end, I'll be, I'll be ushered into heaven because what I believed, this is, doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. That's reprehensible to believe something like that, to limit his salvation to only affecting one's beginning and end, denies who God is and what he is doing in saving people. He not only saves them, for all eternity, but he continues saving them, sanctifying them until the end. His work will be completed all the way until the day of Christ. So, let's, let's bring this flight to an end. Hopefully we will not have a crash landing. Let's sum it up. The points Paul's made in the section 
Again, that specifically addressed the issue of how re religious people tend to think that they will escape God's judgment. They don't deserve it like, you know, unbelieving, pagan, idolater, atheists, etc., etc. It's pretty clear. Divine revelation provides a great advantage. Two, divine faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. And three, divine justice is not negated even though our sin reveals God's righteousness. So Paul has shown how people are given the great advantage of being entrusted with the word of God, yet oftentimes they fail to live in accordance with it. Hmm. Behavior all, the, all too often doesn't line up with what a person says they believe. Hmm. Let me say it again. Behavior doesn't always line up with what a person says they believe. It's one thing to say that we believe something. It's an entirely different thing to live day to day in accordance with what we believe. And only when behavior corresponds to what one claims to believe is it truly discovered if one's claims are valid or a person actually has a right relationship with God. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul's not, and I am not saying, we earn a right relationship through our behavior. Our behavior demonstrates that we have come into a right relationship with God. So while failure to take advantage of the divine privilege given in the scripture shows such people to be unfaithful, the truth remains that God is always faithful. God's faithfulness cannot, will not ever be done away with, for his righteousness and faithfulness is not ever dependent on our faithfulness. And God remains faithful when we are unfaithful. And let me tell you, you who are believers, that's probably most, if not all of us, we should be extremely thankful that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. If it were, then we'd all be facing the same end. Eternal separation. God's condemnation and eternal separation from him. Paul then explains that God's just judgments of sinners is not negated even when their unrighteousness or falsity makes God's righteousness and truthfulness all the more clear. Just because our failures manifest God's perfection doesn't mean that we're not judged for our failures. And instead of negating God's judgment, it actually, the sinfulness of people makes it all the more clear. They deserve God's judgment. Paul reserves his harshest statement for those who accused him of preaching a, a gospel that promoted a sinful lifestyle in order to show that God is good and gracious in forgiving of sinners. And those who diminish the gospel of grace by suggesting it doesn't matter how they live, you know, is is based on, you know, it doesn't matter how they live, is, is, it's just wrong, it's it's. They're saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter well, because it's based on grace and not works. I, those people will find out their condemnation is just. That's what Paul's saying. Now, while that is primarily directed at unbelievers, I think, I think this is a warning to those who have believed the gospel but somehow end up thinking that it really doesn't matter how they live day to day. It's no big deal since I've already been forgiven. Hey, I was forgiven when I prayed to receive Christ. I believed on him. I'm forgiven past sins, present sins, future sins, all forgiven. So it doesn't really matter. Such believers will find out something. 
that though their sins are completely forgiven in Christ, God's love for them, God's love for them will be seen in his chastisement of them until they turn from their sin. He will discipline those who he loves as his children. And his chastisement will bring about, according to Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, it will bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness in their lives. He will complete what he started. Philippians 1 tells us that. So, all of these points taken together express the principle that the greater, the greater the privilege, the greater the guilt. That's right. It is, in essence, the principle that to whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. We must recognize that we have many great advantages, not the least of which we have the full canon of Scripture. The Old and the New Testament. It's all complete. And God has entrusted his word in, in fullness to us. He's entrusted it to us. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to live in accordance with what it says and to share it with others. It's a possession that is intended to be treasured by us but transmitted to others so that they may hear the gospel and be saved from the wrath of God. Lord, we're thankful for this passage. It reminds us that no matter where we're at in our Christian walk, we still fail you. And it causes my heart, hopefully all of ours, to be thankful that your faithfulness to all that you've promised us in Christ, all that you've given us in him, will never be taken away because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on who you are and what your son has done on our behalf. Thank you for the clarity that this gives for us also in explaining the gospel to those who do not know you and to this point have rejected the truth of God revealed in creation perhaps or even more so in the word of God. Give us wisdom as we take these words and, and amuse on them and work them out in our own lives that then be able to declare with certainty the wonderful gospel message of Jesus Christ our Lord. May that bring you glory. And may it bring us great joy. We ask this all in Christ's great name. Amen.